Uh, Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we all do need your help, and Lord, I just pray that um, as we explore this passion, passion, passage of Genesis, that um, it may to offer it in a way that's clear, and Lord, I pray that um, not just for me, but for all of us here, that you can make our hearts um, as you mean to, but by your living word and your spirit within us. Okay? All right. So let's, let's uh, read the passage, Genesis 9, starting at verse 18. I'll give you a minute to find it. Um, it's a heavy passage. So um, that, that song that I asked Jane to sing, I was actually inspired by Ephesians and might be worth just kind of keeping, you know, the beauty of that in mind as we stroll through the part of Genesis. So Genesis 9, starting verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah became a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, let, him and Canaan, let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So we'll, we'll look at those first, those first two verses and just unpack them a little bit. Um, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. But today's passage, I'll admit, seems in some ways quite foreign to us and quite hard to relate to. Before we look at some of the specific components of it and the questions they raise, let's remember where Noah fits into the Bible's explanation of the start of humanity. So we believe in keeping with historic Christian tradition and also scripture's plain teaching that every human being on the entire planet is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And that these two historic people uh, and their children began to fill the earth as we read from Genesis 4 through to 7. And we'll be looking at some of those descendants today. But you'll also remember that um, the catastrophic impact of sin began to have at the start of humanity. Adam and Eve, for their disobedience to God, were no longer able to walk uh, with God, and they began to see themselves in sinful and distorted ways with the, with the introduction of shame and blame and a myriad of other problems. They're no longer able to be naked and unashamed. And sin also started to cause family problems at the very start of humanity. Adam and Eve started out with two boys. You might remember the eldest, Cain, out of jealousy, killed his little brother, Abel, which is just insane to think about. The world's first baby becomes the world's first murderer. Adam and Eve continued to have more children, and Seth, who's the third-born son, has a lineage that leads to Noah eight generations later. So um, Noah is Adam's... Well, Adam is Noah's great, 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 great grandpa. And just in case that's important to me. <laughs> yeah, despite the growing population and the massive global flood of God's judgment, um, humanity then we see it's been reduced back to eight people. So Adam and Eve, a whole bunch of descendants, and we 
forget to go back to eight. And now all of the families of the earth are once again traced back purely to the line of Noah's family. So all of us are descendants of Noah and like. And we've been told that Noah is a righteous man. But we also see that there's more to the story with Noah. He was seen as righteous and chosen by God, saved through the flood. And now he and his family set out to repopulate the world and to have a stab at doing better than Adam. Imagine this new beginning. He would find just eight people. And they're given everything by God and they're commissioned to be fruitful and multiply, just like Adam and Eve were. But around them, the evidence, I suspect, of drowned bodies must have been a constant reminder to them of God's holiness and his judgment. Surely the dead around them serve to remind them of the serious nature of sin. And with eight people to start with just one small family, if anyone besides Adam and Eve had a chance and had intention to avoid sin and to live righteous life, it must have been this family. But it's just not possible. And the reason for that is because the flood didn't cure sin. It's still around. So let's read from verse 20. Uh, Noah began to became Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So as soon as the first crop of grapes has grown on the vine, Noah begins to misuse them. As I said, the flood didn't remove sin. Now farming is totally legit with God. Grapes are fine too. Even wine is, is okay. We, we see that um, all plants. And fruits are gifts from God, but just to give you a few examples of why wine might be okay, we're told in Psalm 104:15 that God causes wine to gladden the hearts of men, bread to strengthen a man's heart. We see Jesus making really nice wine as his first miracle, and regularly sitting down with wine and with his disciples. Wine was suggested as an aid to the stomach, 1 Timothy 5:23, or as medicine to those in bitter distress or dying. Proverbs 31.6. Fascinatingly, um, Isaiah 25, uh, verses 6, 8, and 9, closely ties together feasting and drinking with God's victorious coming. Listen to this. On, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the approach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day, we said, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in, this, in his salvation. So you get the idea. Gladness of heart, fellowship, medicinal use, rejoicing at the second coming of Christ, alcohol does have a Potential place in the Christian life. But Noah sits by losing self-control. Drunkenness is always uh, forbidden by God. It, it betrays this lack of self-control that Noah experienced. And Noah gets stupid drunk. He gets roaming around naked drunk and then naked unconscious on the floor drunk. He utterly disgraces himself. He's an old man who absolutely should have known better. In his first 600 years of righteous living, Noah saw plenty of debauchery and drunkenness around him. And God had explained that the gross sinfulness of people was so severe that it warranted the destruction of every single human being and every animal outside of the ark. And then despite being a beneficiary of God's remarkable mercy, this place of miraculous survival and intimacy with God, 
Noah becomes very much like the people who were just destroyed by God. Yeah? But Noah and his family they step out into the new world, commissioned by God to help the earth repopulate and flourish, and they start to spoil it again. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham is uh, Noah's youngest son. He ducks into his tent, presumably, to fetch something, and he sees this pitiful, drunken, naked old man. My reading of this is that Ham witnesses his dad's sinful disgrace and thinks it's hilarious. A kind of titillating story to brag about finding. He rushes outside to tell his big brothers, hey guys, check it out, I found dad on his face, still drunk, totally passed out, and I don't know what he did with his clothes or why he took them off, but he's completely suckers. Come, check it out. For Ham, as the scripture tells us, did wrong by his father. In some way, he reveled in his father's humiliation. Noah's life, uh, lying there with a total lack of dignity. Because God had granted Noah this authority and stature, and now it's nowhere to be found because he's long passed out on the tenth floor. But Ham wanted to turn his father's disgraceful state into a spectacle for others. And later, the commandment given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai for the people would specifically prohibit this intentional dishonoring of father and mother. But keep in mind that Ham and his siblings aren't simply kids that haven't reached maturity yet. They're all at least 100 years old by this point. So they also should know better. And Ham invited his older brothers to join him in this sinful humiliation and this treatment of their father. This is how the older brothers respond. Verse 23. Then Shem and Jacob took a garment laid it on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Shem and Jacob resisted the origin of the youngest brother. They found their father's clothes and they took great care to approach him um, with, with, with respect and dignity. Uh, walking backwards, I don't even know what that kind of looks like, but rather than just avoiding their dad, dad's kind of like messy, horrible kind of situation, they actively risk themselves uh, in order to be able to cover him, cover him up and give him some dignity. So their humility brought fresh dignity to Noah and it was commended by God in the rest of the head. Eventually Noah comes to and he navigates whatever spectacular hangover he had, his head throbbing as he bends down and comes to dress himself. Then he steps into the brightness outside the tent and he starts to learn from the echoes of Ham's gossip what has happened. Let's finish reading. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So I read in these verses a, a positive blessing spoken upon Shem. Shem is given the blessing of God, and we know that the line of Shem will become the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Japheth too receives a blessing through the people of Shem and God's blessing to, to that family. But I want you to look at the curse more closely. Did you notice something odd about the curse? Did something that's just kind of a bit odd? Do you remember who sinned against Noah? It was Ham, right? Noah's son. And then who's cursed by Noah? Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed. Even cursed amongst his brothers. So why does the curse skip Ham and impact Noah's grandson? I guess a live question. I, I, I haven't got a specific answer for you, but let me understand. The Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, was written by Moses. 
And it was written just before the Israelites were due to enter the promised land, also known as the land of Canaan. So in part, Moses' divinely inspired writing helped serve, helped serve um, the people of Israel understand that God was to give this specific promised land into the hands of Israel from the first descendants of Canaan. I've heard it taught that the curse upon Canaan was uh, likely justified by Canaan's actions himself, as well as the actions of Ham. So where his dad Ham sinned, Ham sinned, Canaan the son likely sinned as well, as well as the following descendants. The curse is spoken because of something that happened earlier, but it continues to be justified by the sinful behaviour. Um, there's only exceptions. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, cheers. Um, where are we? Uh, uh, there's certainly exceptions to the line of Canaan. So I'm Ruth. Uh, the, the Bible's character Ruth comes from this line, and that mysterious priest Melchizedek um, are both descendants through the curse line of Noah and Canaan. Um, and just a brief side note, this might not have been interest to any of you guys, but the curse against Canaan has been used by some dominant people groups in history as a justification for the subjugation and enslavement of entire movements of people, most specifically Africans. And I'm not going to go into it, but needless to say, the theory is going to add up. It's totally bunk, and it's modern people trying to justify slavery and genocide in the name of scripture by cherry picking a few verses like this. Um, it's of course totally unacceptable, and if you follow the people groups that descend from them, it's also wrong, it's like historically wrong. But um, if that's something that you've wondered about, though, um, or you'd like to know why it doesn't really stack up or anything related to kind of racism in the Bible, John Piper's book is called Bloodlines The Race Across the Christian. Really, really helpful overall. Appendix four in that one is specifically about this question about the kind of curse on pain and slavery and stuff. So, um, designer.org is pretty there. Um, there's a few aspects of this passage that I want to look at a little bit more deeply. Um, just before we do, the passage ends the way that many did before, um, summarizing the length of Noah's days. So, verse 28 Noah is after the flood, Noah is 350 years. All of the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So, it's only a small footnote, but Noah was the last of the people to live a really long time. Remember that this evil was increasing back in Genesis 6 3, but God said He was going to begin to number the length of people's days. He was going to shorten people's lifespans to 120 years. So, um, from Shem onwards, lifespans keep dropping until Moses uh, dies at 120, the first people to die at that age. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, as far as I can see throughout history, 3,500 years since there's been one lady. Uh, verified as living 120 years, so as uh, Lady Giard, I may pronounce it wrong, she's from France. Uh, yeah, we'll get wrong. Yeah. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but born in uh, 1875 and remarkably lived to uh, 1997, uh, I was 22. But apart from that, I couldn't see the evidence of anyone actually living longer than 120 reliably. Sort of, uh, trivia. As we go forward, you'll notice that the setting sort of rock and ages despite staying true to this word. Um, so I want to dig deeper of three things. Nakedness, drunkenness, just like a lot of and hope. Um, so nakedness, we'll start with nakedness. The problem uh, with nakedness in Noah parallels that with the problem of nakedness in Genesis 3. 
I say that because the shame of nakedness goes back to the fall. So originally Adam and Eve were walking and talking openly with God. Openness in all sense of the word. Um, they had no hesitation, no shame, no covering. They were naked before God and unashamed. Yeah, just completely vulnerable and forthright and nude. They had complete honesty with God and complete ease. Can you even imagine that? It's just hard for us to kind of grasp the side of the fall. And suddenly, because of the fall, they hid from God. And sadly, we know what that is like, don't we? Um, hiding is almost a default for us without the work of the Spirit. We have to constantly use God's help to not hide. Um, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And shame was linked with rebellion. It caused them to be ashamed before the face of God, to seek to avoid Him, and to make feeble attempts to cover themselves with fig leaves. So no sin goes back to the same. Shame for sinful nakedness and sin enters the world, and all of a sudden, there continues to be shamefulness and being naked. Instead of being perfect and relationally intimate, sin, sin distorts our relationships with God and one another and removes the beauty and the innocence and the openness of being uncovered in our view. But it's a tremendous paradox that Noah, man declared righteous by God as the basis for him surviving the flood, is also fallen. And deficient as he reintroduces sin for the first time in the newly re-emerging post-flood world. In his shame, Noah fails to faithfully represent God. His drunken, naked misrepresentation of God brings indignity, shame, and dishonor afresh. So I'd love for you to think about just for a moment what would it look like to regain intimacy with God? What would it be like for your mind? In heart to not be regularly in a state of trying to hide. Now, doctrinally, we know that nothing is hidden from God, but God sees and knows all things. But what would it look like for you to desire unknowing honesty with God? To want to personally bring your cares and worries to Him day by day, moment by moment? We'll come back to that. But, um, related to this deficient relationship of God, there's a second theme I want to touch on, which was drunkenness. I suspect that there would be very few people in our church untouched by substance misuse or addiction. For some of us, we will wrestle personally with periods of substance abuse, whether alcohol or cannabis or other drugs. Some of us may still be in the midst of this battle. Others may have been impacted by the drunkenness of family members and the harm that can follow, including various forms of, of, of abuse that are just horrendous. We live in a heavy drinking country, that's for sure. We live in a heavy drinking town, and, and, and we're a gospel presence in this community where addiction um, to alcohol and other drugs it is really problematic and causing quite a lot of harm. Even more than this, I think that the ensnaring factor of addictions is familiar in some ways to each of us. The lack of self control matched with the excessive desire for anything which is not God is absolutely relevant to all of us. And maybe you've never had a drop of alcohol in your life, but there's something about kind of this impulse that's kind of familiar, I think. So regardless of how much crossover addiction from misuse of substances has in your life, it's really important in the life of gospel church that we understand this and have good conversations about it um, and to understand it biblically. So there's a few scriptural principles. Um, no one should ever feel obligated to drink. That's reasonable and even wise to avoid alcohol altogether. Uh, drinking in a moderate, controlled manner is 
not condemned anywhere in scripture, but we should also be sensitive with alcohol use and avoid drinking around those who are dependent. So just a few principles. From today's passage, it's obviously very common to get so drunk that you don't stay conscious, or to find out funny scoffing at people who are in such a state, but we shouldn't really ever be anywhere close to that state. Um, we shouldn't be sort of pushing the limit or telling the line. Later in Genesis, we read about Lot and his daughters who get into a horrifying position because of what's happening with But listen to this in Proverbs 23, 29, 35. So it's just a bit of a warning about um, the use of alcohol. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has trust? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who try, those who go to try and mix wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. And your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. You'll be like one who lies on the top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I wasn't hurt. They beat me, and I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Scripture reminds us that those who are drunk lack wisdom and they will come to poverty. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. So just looking at some of the Old Testament characters, the Nazarites were strictly prohibited from drinking. Priests were not allowed to drink because God didn't want them confusing what was holy from what was unholy. Um, kings were discouraged from drinking because it could cloud their judgment in their uh, ruling of, of people. Um, elders and deacons are encouraged not to be enslaved to alcohol. It's a, um, it's a disqualifying um, uh, trait. And also, uh, in the same passages, older women are also encouraged not to drink like that Titus and 1 Timothy. So John Calvin, this is a fascinating quote, says that drunkenness is a way of debasing the image of God. To, to, to drunk is to debase the image of God. We're, we're created in the image of God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, and alcohol diminishes each of these, robbing us of knowledge and righteousness and holiness. God's image within us is defaced and devalued, and God takes this very seriously. Um, 1 Peter 4 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of. So it's not specifically about alcohol, but self-control is warranted for all of us as, as Christians. And repeated passages, these are remarkable. 1 Peter 4.3, Galatians 5.21, Romans 13.13, and 1 Corinthians 6.10. Drunkenness is listed alongside orgies, homosexuality, adultery, and a variety of other sins that will stop people from hearing the kingdom of God. So it seriously. Now, every person on the earth is either prone to addiction and to placing other desires above God. And then our tendency, uh, why our tendency to struggle and sit away, even if not pick up upon, we should be seriously sobered by the picture we have from this passage about the severity of God's judgment towards him, compassion, pain, and all future descendants. So that gives us some grounds of thought. Um, lastly, I just want to consider the theme of hope. So um, Noah was seen as righteous. But God demands perfection. And because of Noah's loss of control, man's disrespect, sin resulted in the whole line of Noah's, uh, whole line of Noah's family being cursed and cut off. And if we're honest too, we are also sinners. 
Most of us have seen in far more spectacular ways than the ones that we've read about in today's message. But there aren't any special grades in sin. All sin is an affront to God, and all sin warrants God's punishment. And as a result, each and every one of us has earned God's wrath and deserve God's punishment time after time after time. And yet, God shelters us from the wrath of God as He took it upon Himself. Thanks be to God. In mercy, God shows us. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in you, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's just so precious. Chapter 2 reminds us of how much like Noah and we were, and how much we were warranted the curse of God. Uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 1 You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's beautiful. We were dead. We were deserving of punishment, and God has brought anyone that has faith in Christ to new life, to walk in a new and different way. Paul reminds us in 217 that Christ came to give peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. Everyone's invited. For through him we have access uh, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God. Paul further unpacks in chapter 3 the mystery of the gospel, how we are to be strengthened in the spirit, how we are to use our gifts for the body, how we are, how we are to relate to one another with humility, gentleness, patience, love, and eagerness to maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. And further in chapter 4, Paul describes the new self that should characterize the new life of the believer. He reminds us of our constant need to leave behind the old self and its impulses. He paints a picture of sin, futile thinking, hard hearts, callousness, deceitful desires which give us over to sensuality and feed our appetite for everything which is impure. And so many of these things are in the passage today, right? Paul warns against unhelpful patterns of gospel, uh, gossip, like a, like hand, a bitterness, wrath, anger, sexual morality, and foolishness. All of these things are known to us. We've all experienced our own versions and none of them are shocked. None of them needs a great deal of explanation. Particularly today, looking at uh, 5, 15 to 18, Paul has this last morning. Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So as humans, we face constant choosing, right? For Adam and Eve, should they trust God in his promises or listen to the serpent? Should Noah listen to the mocking voices of the patriots he was building the ark? Who were just, you know, talking about that he was stupid and had never rained before, so they're like, what are you doing, buddy? Like, I didn't see anybody water, why do you need a boat? Like, yeah. Should Noah listen to those voices? Or does he uh, trust God? Be faithful to what God's asked him to do. Should Noah give way to the impulses that made him choose to get drunk? Or should he fear the God of the flood and the rainbow and value righteousness? So what about us? In, in, in light of God's love for us, the promises of his word, the gift of his Holy Spirit, I want you to contemplate how you will respond to the choices you face this week. Will I trust that God will deliver my greatest satisfaction and eternal good in the face of other things competing? Or will I listen to the joy thief who comes to steal, steal and kill and destroy? Who we trust? determines our choices, it determines our actions, and eventually under God's sovereign plan, it reveals the course of our lives. So multiple times a day we face these choices. We're vulnerable to temptation, we're vulnerable to stumbling and sin, we're vulnerable to remaining stuck in sin, and Ephesians 6 encourages us to prepare for this battle with the armour of God. We're reminded to consider what God has done for us, as our song reminded us, to immerse ourselves in Scripture, to have an intimate sharing of ourselves with God in prayer, to be vulnerable to him, and to pour out our hearts to him, the opposite of what Adam and Eve do after they have taken the truth. This also means sharing our negative emotions and our distress directly with God because he cares and he can help turn around how we're feeling. That's the passage, that's the, um, that's the pattern of the song. So it's David, the man who was a man of God's own heart, and actually just saying, oh, I'm feeling all these things, and that God comes and ministers to him. So in our passage today, I'd suggest that something was going on for Noah, I mean, reading between the lines, but when he could have brought his cares and his worries and his grievances to God, instead he self-medicated and set in motion a chain of events that led to God's curse of his grandson and all of those descendants. But today's passage reminds us of our default bent towards depravity. And as Christians, the story of Noah's failure and Ham's failure, it's the story of our, our failure too. But God has forgiven us and he has empowered us with the spirit. He has equipped us with the word. He's given us sweet fellowship as a place that we can help each other to walk more and more in the fruits of the spirit. So let's, Gospel Church, help each other to have lives that are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So our honesty with each other promotes the Spirit's work of sanctification and it increases our willingness for daily intimacy of precious joy and safety. Um, we'll have communion in a minute. So I might just pray for that. Um, if in wrestling with stuff as you're listening today, if that kind of has impacted you, please, you know, grab someone sitting next to you or grab me and let's talk about it. Let's sort of um, work on some of the stuff where God's been convicting you. Um, we have a great high priest who scripture tells us was able, was able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's tempted in, uh, in the same way that we are, because without sin. 
And so he advocates for us to the Father, and um, he laid down his body for us, um, living amongst broken, crooked, sinful people. He still so to give himself over. So um, his um, body reminds us that he was broken for us. Um, his blood was spilled to, to wash us clean from, from the punishment of the sins. So when you're ready, um, come and do it. You can um, do it with others around you, or you can do it by yourself. Um, I just ask you if you're um, not walking um, with God, if you are not a believer, to just refrain from that. Um, if you come chat to that. Um, yeah, let's thank God for the words. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a righteous and holy God, but you're also a merciful, loving, kind God that has given us far more than we could ever have deserved. Um, Lord, help us to be grateful, to have hearts filled with praise and thanksgiving and a desire uh, to, to um, pursue obedience, to, to walk in the fruits of the Spirit, the armor of God. And Lord, help us to do this together and not alone. Help us not to be people to hide and back and weave. Um, but Lord, Lord, grant us what we need um, to, to, to do the things you ask us to do. And so, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Remember that it's over us today. And uh, uh, Lord, we just thank you for all of the ways that you've yeah.